Welcome to the Life on Repeat podcast with me, Laura Valancourt, licensed mental health counselor, geriatric mental health specialist, and dementia coach. I'm so happy that you found us. Hi, friends. I am very excited to have this conversation today. We have Cindy Weinstein joining us today. She's an author. She is the Eli and Edith Broad Professor of English at Caltech. And she's written several books on U.S. literature and most recently has written Finding the Right Words, A Story of Literature, Grief, and the Brain. And she wrote this book with Dr. Bruce Miller of UCSF. And I'm really excited, Cindy, to have you on because for so many reasons. You have your own personal experience with your father who had Alzheimer's disease. And, and I'll, I'll get in. I want to learn a little bit more about that journey that you were on. But also, I'm really fascinated about your book and your partnership in writing this with this doctor. Now, Dr. Bruce Miller is a neurologist. Is that right? That's correct. He's a clinician and a researcher. And Laura, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me. Well, thank you, Cindy. This is this is going to be a great conversation, really. So I'd love to just start out by maybe you can just give all of us and I want to admit and share I haven't read your book yet. I wanted to just get you on after I I learned about you and get an interview in so that folks can find it. I know that I have ordered the book and waiting for it to come in and I've got my highlighter ready. (laughs) So yeah, maybe you can just share a little bit about your story about your, your father and give us a little bit of a a backstory to, to start with. My father had early onset Alzheimer's when he was diagnosed in the eighties everyone who had memory issues, who had dementia, it was all Alzheimer's. And so it wasn't until I met Dr. Miller when I was part of an interdisciplinary program in neurology at UCSF that I got what's called a precise diagnosis for my father, which was early onset, meaning 65 years or younger, early onset Alzheimer's with the logopenic variant, which is a word finding issue. And that was the first symptom that I saw with my dad. I actually heard it over the phone because when he started getting sick, I was in Berkeley getting my PhD in English while my parents were in Florida. And my father's other symptoms, I came to learn when I studied neurology with Bruce and the amazing faculty and staff at UCSF. There were other symptoms as well. And he had always been pretty upbeat and there was a real mood change. He had depression and we chalked it up to the fact that there were so many changes going on in his life. He was in the process of selling a business that he had been 
running with his brother-in-law, my mother's brother for decades, and also moving to Florida. They were in New Jersey. And so it was very kind of reasonable to think that the depression was related to those issues. And one thing I learned from Bruce actually is that depression isn't necessarily solely a response to the dementia, but it's the dementia itself. So that was quite eye-opening. And I should just sort of say, I mentioned being in Berkeley, getting my PhD. My father was diagnosed in his 50s. I was in my mid-20s. And as I said, getting a PhD in English. And the fact that the most apparent clinical presentation was word finding was especially kind of brutal. I mean, it's all brutal, but the synchronicity of me becoming an expert with language and words when my father was losing language and words was something that I felt very deeply and needed to come to terms with. And it took a very long time to do that, took decades. So uh, my father died in the 90s. Yeah. When you, when you said that, I, I actually got chills just imagining words are our way, obviously, of communicating, but communication is connection and how having this relationship with your father and, and being at a distance to sometimes the only way to, to connect, right. I, I'm guessing, was maybe over the phone or... Right. Boy, I just can't even imagine what that was like for you on on this whole other level of exactly what you said, diving deep into the the world of language and and words and communication and how that happens on paper and verbally and and then having your father losing that. Wow. You said so many important things there that I wanted to just kind of take a step back on and that is you mentioned the depression piece and I'm I'm glad that you have because so often I think people really do think that depression is a natural response to getting a diagnosis or having a major life change or medical condition and I think it is really helpful for people to understand that it is part of the changing brain and the the disease process. The other thing that I wanted to touch on, if you don't mind giving us a little more information is uh, because I, I talked to so many people who get a diagnosis and that diagnosis, I'm drawing some similarity to maybe back when you were going through this with your dad. What did you say? This was in the the nineties. Yeah. And so he was actually, the diagnosis was 1985. The diagnosis came in 85. So it was through the sick throughout for over a decade. And just listening to you, there are so many things that have changed since then. And I'm hearing you and I'm also drawing some similarities that I'm thinking, wow, things have not changed in a lot of ways since then too. And one of the ways that I'm thinking of is how often I hear families say, we went to our primary care doctor and they gave us a diagnosis of dementia. (laughs) And it's like, whoa, wait a minute. 
dementia isn't technically a diagnosis. And so what, so I was wondering if you could speak to how life may have changed or what you learned once you were able to meet with a neurologist and was that important to you? Was it not? How, yeah, give us a little information about that. Sure. I should also say that the first chapter of the book is actually called diagnosis. And I didn't think I was going to write that chapter. Bruce, it turned out, was an amazing literary critic and superb listener, empath, writer, all of it. I found the perfect person to book with. It was meant to be. (laughs) It was meant to be. And and you just said so many things that I want to respond to. One of them is that it is true that many things have changed. And thank God, the science has moved forward, not as quickly as any of us would like. When my father was diagnosed, my mother was completely on her own. The idea that a caregiver needed care just like did not even enter the equation. So it always makes me sad that even though my father's illness happened many, many years ago, there are resonances today. I guess it makes me glad that I wrote the book because hopefully it'll help people to hear the experiences we had. But what I wanted to say about diagnosis was this, I remember sitting in Bruce's office and I was, as I mentioned, part of this interdisciplinary program called the Global Brain Health Institute. And I attended classes twice a week on neurology. I went to grand rounds. I got to shadow doctors if the patient gave permission. I got to sit in on differential diagnoses. It was incredible. And I can talk about why I wanted to learn some of that at some point. But the story that I wanted to tell about the diagnosis was I was sitting in Bruce's office and told him this terrible story when my mother brought my father into um, the office of a hearing doctor. She was noticing years before the diagnosis that dad wasn't hearing very well. The hearing tests were done. The doctor said to my mother, his hearing is fine. And then the follow-up was, how long have you been married? My mother said many, many years, and the doctor said, well, he just doesn't want to listen to you. And then I told Bruce that story, and his response was your response. And he said, that needs to be in a chapter about diagnosis. And it was that kernel, that memory that led me to write that chapter and then to go back in time to the few years before my dad got the diagnosis and realizing that the writing was on the wall. And of course, I didn't know it. I didn't know that problems with handwriting, he would type me letters. Thank God I kept them. You talked about communication. We, we didn't have FaceTime. We didn't have all these wonderful technologies. So we had the phone which became increasingly difficult as a mode of communication. I wrote him letters knowing 
probably at a certain point that he would not be able to read them. And thank God I wrote them. And when he died, I was going through one of his drawers and found them in a plastic bag. He had opened them all perfectly with his letter opener, folded back perfectly. They were fairly precious. So that is just, I, I just have to say, just painting that picture alone of how he stored those letters, right? the reflection of how he opened them, how he took care of them, how he saved them, how it says so much, just a little. Yeah. There. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And I have them still and think goodness, I wrote them. I don't have his voice on a recorder. I know people talk about that. I just saw the other day on social media, this woman recently lost a parent and she said she was so glad that she had a recording of the voice. That's something your audience might want to keep in mind. I'm glad that you're bringing that up. And that is something that I want to, we'll touch on that again. <laughs> okay. Yeah. This is so lovely. And I, and I think that many of our listeners are feeling it as much as I am. The, this was so many years ago and yet not in a lot of ways. You know, when you think of the time space continuum and how, how that works. And I, one of the things that I'm thinking about, one other thing that you brought up just now that we could, we could go on, we could have a whole conversation about this piece is when you mentioned your mother and how during those years, the focus was so much on the person that had the disease and people weren't looking at the whole picture, the whole, the whole support system, the whole family unit. And that's something that I know I talk so much about just as a counselor working with families who are caring for someone with dementia. You know, when people ask me, how do I know it's time to move my loved one? Or what are the first things we need to do to prepare? It's, my focus is always on who is the primary caregiver. It is imperative to build a support, whatever that looks like. It can look different to so many people, uh, what that looks like. But we need to be aware of the impact on the family and that primary person. So I'm imagining what that must have been like for your mom. And it sounds like you may have been one of her primary support people and you lived across the country. And so being a quote caregiver for both of your parents, essentially from a distance, tell us a little about your experience with that. Sure. Before I do that, I want to say that I'm actually in a caregiver group now, which I never would have expected part of the process of writing the book has involved getting people to read it. And I was encouraged to do social media, which I had not done before. And so I have a Twitter account. Oh. And it's through that that I have come across opportunities to talk about the book with podcasters like yourself, with 
Travis Macy, who um, has a book coming out about his father's early onset Alzheimer's, which is a magnificent book. A magnificent book. And for those listening, we we had Travis on our show. I don't remember the episode number, but it was a few episodes back. Him and his father. Ah, that's um, great. Yeah. It was a beautiful episode. Yes. So it's through social media that I discovered a group called Diverse Alzheimer's. They're in the UK. They meet twice a week, 8 p.m. UK time, California time, noon. And it has been truly mind-blowing because when my father was sick and my mother was the primary caregiver, we didn't know what we were doing. And my mother definitely didn't have the support system that she needed. And given the type of person that she was, there was a lot of denial. And it just, we were just all on our own. There's a lot of stigma. There still is. I think telling stories is so important to undermining stigma. In any case, my mother was, as I said, definitely on her own. And I had a very difficult decision to make when I was at Berkeley. I went to my advisor and I said, my father has Alzheimer's and I think I need to leave Berkeley and I want to keep doing my PhD. And what about Johns Hopkins, which is where my advisor had gone to graduate school. And my beloved advisor looked me in the eye and he said, you can't do both. Either stay in Berkeley and do the degree or go to Florida and do what you need to do. But don't think that that's going to work for you. And that was brutal to hear. And in in those days, it's remarkable to me, never occurred to me to take a year off. (laughs) Never. Of course, that's what I should have done. Yeah. Or six months off or something. So what I did was during my Christmas breaks, my summers, I would go to Florida and stay and help for as long as I could. Mm -hmm. And I lived almost like a double life. Yeah. Really, really happy graduate student by day. And as I write in the book, devastated daughter by night. And so when I was in the library reading, kind of consuming a book a day or what have you, I didn't have to think about what was happening in Florida. Mm -hmm. And then when I would go home and go to sleep and my brain got quiet, it filled up with the noise, the sadness of what was happening to my father. So there was a great deal of compartmentalizing going on. And I try and tell myself, and I think maybe part of why I wrote the book was to forgive myself for the decision, even though I know that's what my parents would have wanted me to do. But like, that's irrelevant emotionally. (laughs) So just to kind of say to myself, you did the best you could. Right. This is so important when anyone is going through 
a big life change or a crisis or you're in the midst of chaos to give yourself some grace first you're not operating on your your highest potential usually in those moments and you just do the best you can with what you have um you you mentioned i think this is an important piece to just kind of highlight about wh what you had said about this compartmentalizing piece and and i think that that is a survival mechanism and it's okay to do that i think so many people do that whether it's either go to work during the day or they lose themselves in in something else and it may look like avoidance or it may look like you're stuffing something down or you're in denial i hear that a lot as families will share that their loved ones say that they're in denial of something but the reality is you we have to be gentle with ourselves in this and if that is what is helping us survive through yeah. an a quote unsurvivable experience then that's okay Right. Well, it's good to hear you say that from, you know, kind of from the other side, if you will. I think where it got unhealthy, not good, not sure what the right adjectives are, is that I somehow, I write about this too, and I don't know if this is representative or, or what, I forgot he was dying mm. because the duration of the disease can be so long. I thought that life was going to Florida and then when my dad was in a nursing home, going to the nursing home, going back to California, that that was just how it was going to be. And something like switched off at a certain point and I forgot he was dying and I I write about kind of giving myself an anesthetic that took decades to wear off so there was like compartmentalizing and and you're right I think that is necessary to a certain extent but I think I was in my own sort of form of denial. Yeah. And working through that was crucial. And I think writing was really important. And if people in your audience like to write or record their feelings, I think if you put them on the page, it's harder to ignore. And as painful as it is to confront how you're feeling as it's happening, ultimately, it's better than not. Thank you so much for saying that. That was my next question is, so how do you have one foot in each world? How do you honor what's happening and function with the day-to-day -day, you know life and i appreciate you talking about the writing piece and i've had other podcast guests that have said the same thing what whether they were authors or not just how incredibly helpful it was to them to get words on paper or to have their own way of processing 
Yeah, thank you for that. Really, I, I want to ask a little more about the book and just tell us a little about what led you to decide to write this? I, you are an English professor and <laughs> it sounds like a natural fit, yet I also know this is a deeply personal experience that you had. And so, yeah, tell us a little about your sure. decision to do that. Thank you for that question. Like I said, the simultaneity of me studying words, my dad losing words was was something I needed to really figure out and how I dealt with that. So writing a book had been on my mind for a very, very long time. I am a professor and have an obligation to write and a passion for writing academic books. So I've written a bunch of books on US literature, and there have been times in between writing an academic book when I thought, okay, now I'm going to write this book about my father. But I must not have been ready because another idea about an academic topic would enter the picture. And I was really happy about that. And so that's what I would do. I wrote a recent book on representations of time in, in American literature. And there was a period where then I was like, okay, now I'm going to write a book about my dad. And I started drafting a couple of chapters. The first chapter I wrote was about word finding. It's called Call Me Ahab, which is a riff on the opening line of Moby Dick, Call Me Ishmael. You're not supposed to be Ahab. <laughs> That's not a good character to be. And it was about a trip through a supermarket with my father where he's trying to remember a word and can't find the word. So I wrote that. And then I also wrote another chapter. Each chapter basically is organized around a memory that's emblazoned in my head. The other chapter I wrote was about my father's spatial disorientation. And one of the examples in that chapter is him trying to play golf and pointing the club in the wrong direction. So I had two chapters that I shared with a couple of neurologists. I thought maybe I could write the book with someone at Caltech, but we really don't do that much Alzheimer's research. So eventually, probably took about eight years to find Bruce. I sent Bruce an email and I said, I'm going to be in the Bay Area. This is what I'm working on. Do you want to talk? And he said, let's meet. We hit it off. He asked me if I wanted to learn some science. I said, yes. He said, there's this amazing program we have at UCSF. You should apply. So that's how that happened. But that's how, that's how you got into the program. Right. Oh. Right. But why I wanted to learn neurology is slightly different. I felt that the way I had contextualized, if that's even the right word, my father's experience was as a daughter, of course, but 
also as someone who loved to read. And when I thought about what was happening to my father, I thought about literary characters and their pain and their suffering. I thought about literature and its search for identity and my father losing his identity. So novels were my way in to thinking about my dad, but it was too oblique. I was in a kind of hall of mirrors and thinking about plots and narratives and characters, it just wasn't doing it anymore. And being at Caltech, where there's a whole lot of science research going on, I thought intuitively, maybe science is what I need. Mm -hmm. I need a different discourse. I need a different frame to understand what was happening. And it was kind of like a guess that learning about the brain would help me get back to my father's brain. And it worked. Yeah. You know, we talk about that. What is that simple saying? We fear what we don't understand. And they, just enlightening ourselves. Yeah. yeah. The unknown, the great unknown, right? Of Right. Right. And I also wanted to write the book with a scientist, a doctor, someone who was an expert in neurology, Bruce knows everything about dementia, his area of expertise. And some of your listeners may have seen his 60 minutes interview with Forrest Whitaker. His area of expertise is frontotemporal dementia, which is actually in many ways very different from Alzheimer's. I didn't want to write a memoir solely about me and my dad and my family. I didn't know how exemplary we were. A Jewish girl from New Jersey, middle class, English professor. I just didn't know if my story would resonate. And I wanted to use my expertise, pair it with the expertise of a neurologist so that readers could read the book and it wouldn't be the first time that they heard the word temporal lobe or heard the word frontotemporal dementia. I wanted to equip readers with knowledge in the way I needed to be equipped with knowledge. And so the book has pictures of the brain, what a healthy brain looks like, what a not healthy brain looks like. On the book website, those images are in color. They're in black and white in the book. And not everyone can get to UCSF or the Mayo Clinic or the Penn Memory Center. And so getting Bruce's expertise into the world to people who wouldn't have access to it also became a really important part of what I wanted to do with the book. Absolutely. And just hearing you talk about, again, I, I haven't read it yet, but I am so intrigued it sounds like what you're saying is that many of the chapters revolve around a, a memory or a moment um, that stands out to you. And so there, it sounds like there's this beautiful weave of story and experience and science that's explaining and helping right. know more about what's going on. 
that's exactly the structure. I had in mind a structure for the book and I really wanted to stick to it. It made for some challenges in terms of getting the book published because some editors weren't sure what to do with it. It's a memoir written by two people, one of whom never met my father. He only, Bruce only knows my dad through my memories. So there was a question of, okay, how is this gonna be posted on Amazon? <laughs> right. What genre is this exactly? Yeah. So you have the structure exactly right. I tell stories, bring in literature, Bruce reflects on the stories, speculates about the neurology behind what's going on. And what I love about what Bruce does is he's very specific in providing an account of what may have been happening in my dad's brain, but then using that as an occasion to then talk to readers about other kinds of dementia. Yeah, it opens the opens exactly. the conversation there. Right. And then Bruce himself, with my urging, went outside of his doctor lane and tells his stories about his parents. And on the back of the book, I was so happy. We have a painting that his mother did. Oh, wow. And he talks about his father and his grandchildren. And so he goes back and forth a bit between oh. Dr. Miller and Bruce, son, grandson, father, all of those identities. So, wow. Yeah. wow. You know, I'm also thinking as you were talking about the fact that he never met your father, so many people even when they bring their loved ones in to meet with a neurologist, those doctors rely on yeah. family to inform them. You know, doctors are getting such a short snapshot. And we hear often, I've seen this too, where our loved ones will rise to the occasion and will present very well <laughs> in those 15 minutes <laughs> and walk out to the parking lot and forget everything that, that had happened. But the, to your point, I can see that exchange between you and Bruce in, in writing this book, even though he hadn't met your father. Again, the importance of family members sharing their experience or what they're noticing. You Families know a person's baseline better than anyone and, right. and are watching the rate of the decline. And, and so, yeah, I'm just uh, thinking what a this is this is gonna be a really great book to read. I'm I'm definitely looking forward to this. Thank you. Well, I, I should just also say that the back and forth between me and Bruce, I think of as a template for how doctors can interact with patients and their families. One thing I recommend when I have the opportunity to do this, when Bruce and I have spoken with audiences where there are doctors especially is that instead of going right to the MRI or the pet to ask the family for story oh. that captures exactly why you're in that room and I think that that can be so powerful for many reasons just like you say in terms of conveying information that's mm -hmm. one thing and then the other thing is it empowers the family and 
clearly the power dynamic, the doctor has a lot of the, most of the scientific answers. They're on the PET, the MRI, the blood work, the biomarker, what have you. And I think whatever the doctor can do to show empathy and to not necessarily equalize the situation in that room, but to make the family feel empowered and that their voices matter. Heard. Mm -hmm. That is just so important. Cindy, thank you so much for saying this. I know there are amazing doctors and neurologists out there. There are many, many amazing ones. And there are those that don't take the time. And that can be harmful, not just not helpful, but harmful, um, especially when families wait for weeks or months sometimes to finally meet with a neurologist. You know, there's so much energy and anticipation for those meetings. And I know that I've met over and over and over with family members who come out of those appointments in tears because they don't feel heard. They don't feel understood. They, you know, kind of say they, they gave a little assessment and sent them out the door and told them to come back in six months. And we know there, there are very few things that we can do from a medical perspective on slowing down or your preventing or curing that disease. However, that role of physician or neurologist is, I would say should be that is holding sacred space for families who are coming in and often have little hope or often scared. Right. So I, I just appreciate you saying that so much. And, and I agree wholeheartedly that it doesn't take much to listen mm -hmm. and to honor uh, a family's experience right. in those settings. And I think this would be very, very difficult to do, but <laughs> I would suggest that if you find yourself in that space and the doctor just goes right to the MRI or to the PET, if you could say to the doctor, before we do that, can I just tell you something? And just almost like trip up the doctor a little yes. bit, you know, force them to hear. Yeah. Because I think as the advocate for the person with dementia, you'll feel better. And the person with dementia might feel better. I mean, it might be the kind of thing you want to ask the person about before you do it. I can, I can see that. I should probably correct myself before making such a firm recommendation. But the other thing is also when you go into the doctor's office to have a story at the ready, I think that can be quite valuable. I, I think a lot of people probably come in with a list of questions, maybe, I don't know, a few get answered. Yeah, But to the extent that the family can play a part in what that really difficult conversation is going to look like, mm -hmm. yeah, that can really help. Because as you say, it's not only like a zero sum game if it goes bad, it can really mess you up. Yeah. And I've seen families that, that don't go back. 
Right. Just say, this is causing more harm than good, essentially, to our family. And that's sad. And I understand it. (laughs) I understand that. Yeah. When you wrote the book, were there some chapters that were harder than others to write for you? Each chapter was difficult in its own way. I think the writing was easier than the emotions that I had to deal with. Because when I write about Poe and Melville, it's like not crying. <laughs> it's it's old. Yeah. yeah. So I think the hardest chapter for me was probably the easiest chapter for Bruce. And that was the behavior chapter. I didn't know this was another case where I told Bruce's story and it became the kernel of the chapter. My father pulled a sink out of the wall in the nursing home. And Bruce said to me, got to write about that. Whether he pulled the sink out of the wall because of the dementia or because of the medicine that was allegedly aiming to help him is a question. But the reason that chapter was so hard for me to write was that it was a reminder of not being there, that the stories in that chapter were secondhand. So my father's behavior, there were some behaviors that I did see, but it was my behavior that was so difficult to confront. And that behavior was the decision to stay in California. It was the easiest chapter for Bruce to write because with frontotemporal dementia, it can be very behavioral in its presentation. And that's really Bruce's sweet spot in terms of his research and practice. And the behavior for me that I wanted to put into words was a one that I had not thought of for a really long time, but it was this sound that my dad made. It's called bruxism, which is a grinding of teeth. And whether again, that was the dementia or the medicine, I don't know. It wasn't a word. It was a sound. It's very hard to write sound. And I decided at the end of the chapter that what I was hearing was the sound of my father's pain and emptying my brain out to hear that sound and write about that sound was excruciating. Wow. It allowed me though, I think that was probably one of the hardest memories, if not the hardest one. It allowed me to get to the final chapter, which is the chapter on memory, which was the hardest chapter for Bruce to write. Mm. And for me, what I realized in that final chapter, which I thought was going to be the first chapter, because when I first went to UCSF, I thought Alzheimer's was only about memory. It's so much more. What I learned is that I had kind of hidden away all these happy memories of my dad. Because time began when he was diagnosed, even though we'd had 25 years together. And so that final chapter is me getting back to the time before he was sick. Before he was diagnosed. Yes, yes. before he was sick. Oh, yeah. wow. Wow. 
I think that's just so important, uh, again, for people to hear, because when we as human beings go through such difficult or traumatic experiences, you know, those, those things get seared in our brain, they're in the forefront. And how unfortunate, right, that, that that's what comes to mind, that's what's on the surface. And so I think you're illustrating the importance and, and no judgment at all on, on anyone. Everybody has their own journey and their own way of processing and through this, the, the act of writing, the act of processing, the act of going there um, when you, everything in your body is telling you not to, I imagine, <laughs> opens that, uh, opens the space to then be able to go back to the other time. I had read several memoirs and some books about writing a memoir. And the most important takeaway for me was that you have to be authentic and that if the reader sniffs inauthenticity, they're just going to close the book because you're not going to be trusted. And so you have to go to the hardest places so that the reader will trust you and your voice. So the closer I got to the hardest things, like I knew I couldn't stop. Yeah, yeah. Cindy, thank you so much for sharing. This is, I'm so glad that we met. And yeah, I want to thank Travis Macy, who again was a a guest on our show and, and you were a guest on his show for introducing us. And I just really appreciate you sharing so authentically with us. If folks want to learn more about your book or or what you're doing in general, how, what is the best way that they could find you, find out more about you? If you want to learn more about the book and see the images that I was describing that are in color, if you want to listen to some podcasts or read some excerpts, the best thing to do is to go on the book website. It's weinsteinandmiller.com. And on the website, you can be directed to places where you can purchase the book. Uh, the publisher is Johns Hopkins University. You can buy the book from them, from your independent bookstore. Of course, you can buy the book on Amazon.com as well. I have information on the Caltech website. My email is there if anyone wants to get in touch with me, if you want to see some of the more academic conventionally speaking things I've written that's on the Caltech website. What is the Caltech website? So it's um, caltech.edu. Okay. And you can go to one of the links where it says divisions and I'm in the humanities and social science division and you can get to my page that way. And my email is caw at caltech.edu. C-A-W at caltech.edu. Okay. I'll I'll make sure I put all of these in the show notes for folks. Um, Yeah. Cindy, thank you so much again. Such an honor to have you here. I feel the same way. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. 
If you have comments or would like to send us a message, you can send it to hello at lifeonrepeatpodcast.com. Please also consider following us at Life on Repeat Podcast, either on Instagram or Facebook. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute, nor is it meant to convey professional, legal, psychological, financial, or medical advice. If you can use such services, please seek them out from someone you trust.